this audience, who will be talking about Eric Gill, and it's a pleasure to have him here. I call this talk Eric Gill and After, and it's the story of the, the people who try to follow Gill and the struggles they have on the way. And my observations on Eric Gill and the legacy left to his followers were a personal favor, because I was for a time a disciple of Gill's. And I continue to work in that English tradition of lettering, which has grown from Edward Johnson's time. In my opinion, the legacy that Gill left has shortcomings that are too easily ignored by those who, like myself, admire his lettering. I hope to explain what these are and how they've been overcome by the designers and craftsmen who tried to follow him. As Eric Gill began his work in life as an architectural draftsman, learnt stonemasonry and letter cutting before attending Edward Johnson's evening classes is common knowledge, so I won't dwell on that aspect of his career. Let's look at him, who is already established with a reputation for lettering in stone, running a workshop with apprentices and assistants. This is Gill's workshop at Ditchling. He built it around 1912. I took this photograph in 1955, and I can't believe it changed at all in that time. It's a stonemason's workshop. The, the steps lead to the drawing office. Bottom right is a stone, lettering drawn on, waiting to be carved. Since the revival of interest in the, the trade and inscription, encouraged by Johnson's writing, illuminating, and lettering, the classical Roman capital had gained great popularity in England. Derek Gill, endeavoring to get away from what he called Trajan column snobbery, was with Johnson its main arbiter. The many commissions for, for monumental inscriptions that left his workshops were increasingly, increasingly designed by him and cut by assistants. A study of rubbings taken from these inscriptions shows a discernible loss of quality whenever Gill himself did not do the carving. This is a rubbing from a stone, no doubt cut by an assistant, around 1928. Gill's letters hardly changed over 35 years. Apart from the narrowing of capital E, the simplification of W, here we see his early W on W. H. Smith, this is about 1910, I reckon. And he curved the tail of R. And there was little difference between his early and his late work. Anyone who has seen the enormous collection of uh, material in the Sobride Printing Library in London will come away, as I did, with a, a sense of monotony. Beautiful letters, but a restricted range of layout and letter form. This is one of... Uh, several letters he drew in 1910, one doesn't know why. It shows his style at the time, a fairly wide E with a central bar pulled in. It's a very nice drawing too. In 1932 he had carved this for the, the Caxton Club in Chicago, and this is his capital and lowercase lettering at its height. He cut these stones with that drawing guideline. Whether to show off or to 
hurried to sort out, like to know, but they look very elegant with the letters going up and down slightly. If his work is monotonous, we could say in his defence that this only shows the results of a busy working life. And um, the inevitability of, of routine re approaches to routine problems, such as arranging names and dates on memorials. Referring to work to commission, he was unfortunate having to give so much time to, to such a narrow range of work. And his inscriptional lettering informs his other lettering work, whether engraved on wood, draw for reproduction, or designed for type. Luckily, his clients in this wider field had wide knowledge and sympathies, especially Count Kessler and Stanley Morrison. And the beauty and vigor of the lettering he drew for the Cranach Press, which managed to be extremely precise, that being the least stiff, shows a marvelous control of line. Here is a piece of artwork, lettering drawn on board for reproduction, drawn with ink with a brush, retouched here and there with white paint. And quite rare to see Gill attempting to flourish. I'm guessing now, but done about 1920. Here on a scrap of graph paper, beautiful lettering drawn for a binding graph and for the actual binding or sample. Here is flourish the M and flourish the, the Z, or the Z's you say over here. Here, a change of mind. The tail on the R looked too long in the first version, so he paints it out and draws it again. This shows the flexibility of uh, drawing the reproduction. The wood engraving, the stone cut line, you can't do this. He wasn't a calligrapher in the sense that Johnston was, but he could handle a pen, and this is drawn with a broad pen as artwork for line block reproduction. later tended to disparage the line block and he employed John Beedham to engrave his designs on wood and here is a proof of a Beedham engraving the meticulous engraving all the background cut away letter form was not typical girl but this is what Kessler wanted for his production of Hamlet and to use an engraver in this way is a strange return to the 19th century trade engraving practice which Gill said he despised Morrison, a man who knew what he wanted at the head of the Wolfram, was able to harness Gill's talents, of course, to type design. In many regards, his type was his greatest achievement. And from the mid-twenties, he became more and more involved with type design, first with Robert Gibbings at the Golden Cockerel Press, and later with Morrison at Monotype. This isn't, in fact, type. These are wooden grade initials done for Robert Gibbons. And again, shows the typical Gill capital letter, we have the crossbar of the T with double serifs, we have a very wavy tail to the R, and an X which appears to be upside down, but it's not upside down, I've turned the slide the other way up and it looks perfectly okay, the, the, the engraving tool must have slipped to remove too much of the serif on the bottom left hand portion. These Roman capitals went a lowercase in italic, which shows strong traces of Johnson's calligraphy. Here's the golden cockle type, the capitals at the top and lowercase at the bottom. You see, particularly on the D, the way the downstroke curves upwards, it's a very calligraphic terminal, not at all a tall calligraphic terminal.
ideas, a working drawing for Perpetua. I, I prefer to show working drawings if possible rather than the finished theme because we all know the finished theme and it's nice to see what went on behind the scenes, all the retouching and uh, changes of mind. I could have showed any number of slides of Johnson's calligraphy and I thought here it would be nice to show a blackboard drawn by Johnson at a lettering class, probably at the Royal College of Art. And this shows the whole thing in one spread. The broad pen, the form, the gill, left the young man and really kept to for his working life. Although Gill uh, was a product of the arts and crafts movement, he, he disowned them. He was also with contemporary life and apart from association with Morrison and Monotype, quite uninvolved in modern technology. He lived and worked like the fine artists he despised in an ivory tower. But his dreadness of approach to work and methodical working practice prevented his lettering from being the least arty crafty. There's little self-indulgent or perversely quirky about his lettering, which managed to be both timeless and entirely characteristic of his maker. His style is recognisable at one for such details as the, the serifless top to lowercase a and the flag wave in lowercase r. This rubbing from 1912 shows. Both based on Johnson's calligraphic teaching. And we've seen the capital T with double serifs. Sometimes a capital C with serifs top and bottom. It's back to the 1910 drawings. It's interesting that Gill's first um, knowledge of type came from Caslin. Uh, Douglas Pepper used Caslin at the Sir Dominic's Press in Ditchling, and Gill liked Caslin. This C reminds me of the Caslin C. These are all details that in Gill's hands there was little danger of becoming mere mannerisms, but in lesser hands were sometimes being tastefully exaggerated. Nevertheless, I could see a certain sameness. Uh, uniformity in his later work, a lack of curve perhaps, as if all the enthusiasm had gone out of lettering in the stone, and now found his fun in sculpture. There he is outside Broadcasting House in 1931, I believe, working on his famous carving, Prospero and Ariel. There's no chance of Gill finding fresh inspiration in history. Because although he respected tradition, he had no interest in the subject. In his collected engravings of 1928-33, he speaks of his lack of historical sense of these words. It is true I have none. The world is to me the same today, yesterday and tomorrow. There is neither ancient nor modern. And he certainly had no time for such things as elusive typography. David Jones, the painter who lived and worked with Gill in Wales and Buckinghamshire, talks of an exact and evocative use of each word. So I may ask, why not an evocative typography? Remember Gill's strictures in the only next piece of writing he produced about lettering, an essay on typography. The copybook of today is a printed page. Modern handwriting must be reformed by the application of a good knowledge of penmanship to a knowledge of good printing and not by the resuscitation of medieval calligraphy. And while I remember Trajan lovingly in the museum, 
we must forget all about him in the workshop. Here's the reformer, the Puritan speaking, laying down the law, trying, as he said, to hold ideas still by capital and advice. While his own work remained warm and beautiful, he was becoming isolated culturally in his increasingly inflexible attitude. And to illustrate this attitude, here's a poster he wrote for a rare lecture on lecturing. 1908, you see here, he's talking about good lettering as opposed to artistic lettering. He couldn't abide artistic lettering. And the Roman alphabet is a model of good lettering. The need of a good tradition underlying the efforts of individuals. Well, of course, we'd agree with that. The lettering of the Western world is richly diverse, and many of its forms are still available today to use, thus to use and adapt to our diverse needs. Language itself is rich, so its visual form should surely be equally rich. The guilds seem to be unaware of this um, dimension, perversely trying to limit lettering of type to a kind of basic English. What is true that Gill was capable of giving exuberant expression to his lettering, occasionally letting his graphic fancy off the leash as he did with his initials and chapter hoaxes for the Golden Cockerel Press. He usually allowed no more than a gentle calligraphic flourish to escape from the ordered calm of his designs, as in his early work with Kessler. You do not find anything as vigorous and lively as the very early lettering drawn under compulsion. He says at the top of this, drawn under compulsion. This is 1903, before he met over Johnston, before he started to learn about calligraphy. I find it a marvelous drawing. It's vigorous, it's assured. Yeah, we hope that uh, uh, he later regretted turning his back on these artistic forms of lettering. I could almost wish I had that freedom now, he wrote, before the end of his life, perhaps with a note of regret. It's difficult to avoid the conclusion that Eric Gill, through his incessant theorizing and lack of historical perspective, left a very narrow and meager legacy to those who tried to follow in his footsteps. His approach to lettering in the cultural sense, how it should or should not be, or should not be used in the 20th century, was intellectual and abstract. Today's reader of an essay on typography may feel that Gill was so intent on establishing principles that he's more interested in them than in letters themselves. As though have long ago learned how to make letters, which we must remember are things, not pictures of things, he now takes them as read. Even allowing for the inevitable failure of youthful enthusiasm, it is regrettable to find this fine artist leading his followers into such a dry and unproductive land. Gill's narrow-mindedness in lettering is not aesthetic but moral. He disapproved of the industrial commercialism of post-medieval Europe, extended to most of his artifacts, including metaphors. This page from an essay on typography is meant to make people uh, see or choose good from bad. There are probably about four of the most five characters he approved of there. And in the line of lowercase, second from the bottom, second from the right, is a perfectly decent, decent A with a nice blob terminal. He says that is a vulgar 19th century form. But the rich variety of 19th century forms which are represented here by this brass letter, I think a beautiful object. 
Police ministers, vulgar degradations of good letters. One would hope that a man with such a, an eye for a good shape would have given them a passing pleasurable glance. The course girl was not alone in England in this disapproval. Typographic taste in the period between the wars was split between the, the modernism, modernism of the Bauhaus and the revivalism of the private presses of Morrison's type design program at Monotype. In the late 1930s, Robert Harling's and Nicola Gray's championship of 19th century typefaces began the process of rehabilitation, which led to the enthusiastic use of fat face, Egyptian and grotesque on the buildings of the 1951 Festival of Britain. This rehabilitation is completed with James Moses' article in Motif on the English vernacular. But here is a, a very nice letter form based on Trowden, came out in the 50s, part of that revival of 19th century type forms, although cleaned up for 20th century consumption. Here is a spread from the article in Motif by James Mosley. He shows on the right, uh, this is written about 1960, still being made lettering cut in wood for barrows in Covent Garden Market. You can go with your barrow to this man who cut it in wood in that marvellous, vigorous script. This is going on until quite recently. While people theorise and lay down the law, good, strong lettering still going on, but people like Gill didn't, didn't realise it was there. Sad. And here is the recently assured Nicolette Gray's very influential 19th century ornamented typefaces with a chapter by Ray Nash, who I understand died recently. But where did this leave your followers? He said firmly that lettering should follow typography. And here were typographers using the once despised 19th century types. I think he was right, but his view was too narrowly restricted to book typography. The approval was reserved for letters of normal proportion and weight sans serif is a foolproof letter suitable for contemporary uses. The lot, of course, the vulgar 19th century grot, or as Americans strangely call it, Gothic. Of Gil Sands, he said, what a nice letter it would be if it had serifs. And he obviously enjoyed the challenge of evolving a purely geometric letter form as the diagrams on graph paper for the London North Eastern Railway show. These are very pretty things when you see them. What a mixture of conflicting enthusiasm and prohibition Eric Gill must have been for his assistants and his followers. This is a drawing he did at age nine. He had a lifelong love of trains. There the lettering is drawn in his childish hand. Later on he had the opportunity to put the lettering on the flying spot. And here's this well-known photograph of him standing rather out of place by this engine. It's a pity that a man who loved trains should have chosen such a thin, anemic letter form for this splendid locomotive. He had me as a narrow mind. He would have gone back to the 19th century where they had marvellous cast-iron nameplates and engines. In fact, though he was, Eric Gill was not the only European letterer of renown. And it is interesting to compare his work and philosophy with that of his German contemporary, Rudolf Koch. Born in 1876, six years before Gill, described by Albert Windisch in the Fluron as this plain but high-souled man, he was, unlike Gill, an experienced calligrapher. 
and the rich and expressive traditions of Gothic art were for Cock a more fertile soil than Gill's, than, sorry, than Johnson's reclaimed, reclaimed land was for Gill. Essentially a traditionalist with individual spirit, this school often dark, parallel Gill's workshop, where students, instead of apprentices, gathered around the master, learning a wide range of lettering skills. Apart from calligraphy, there was weaving, embroidery, metalwork, wood engraving, punch cutting and painting. It's hard to obtain, or half me to obtain, examples of Colt's work, so I lean heavily on Bertolt Volker. This is from the catalogue for his recent exhibition in London, which I'm, I hope is coming to the States. This was done in the school Offenbach, which is lettering as tapestry. Metal work lettering. Beautiful work. This is Cox and engraved capitals. Very, very strange these upper gills. Very wavered and, and pretty and unreverish. Uh, Face Neuland, a very vigorous animal after all the uh, English uh, reticence. Finally, a diagram, Cock 2 like geometry. Here's one of a series of um, designs he made as a skeletal basis for capital alphabets. The article of the Fraun ends by describing Cock as a master who delves deep and who has, in the art of letter design, had a decisive influence over a whole generation. Gill too influenced the whole generation, but makes a distinctly two-dimensional impression alongside his Offenbach contemporary. Cock died in 1934, aged 58, achieved in the same lifespan as Eric Gill, who died in 1940. Comparing the careers of those who were taught by Cock, those who worked under Gill, it is clear that, that the graduates of Offenbach had the more thorough education in lettering. But this is not to be uh, it's not surprising because the Gill ran a workshop, not a school, and paid assistance to carry out designs in stone, which, as I've described, were often of a fairly routine kind. Offenbach produced designers of the calibre of Warren Chapel, Bertolt Volper, Gotthard de Beauclair, Henri Friedlander, Herbert Post, Fritz Cradle. I was interested to learn from Volper that he was happy to design the inscriptions to be carved by commercial stone cutters, which suggests that, unlike his English counterpart, the German tradesman was still a real craftsman who could be trusted to produce good work. In England, since Gill, the idea has been the designer craftsman who either executes his own designs or directs their execution in his own studio, a practice that has occasionally produced a rather precious fine art approach to lettering and letter making skills. Escaping from Germany and the Nazis in 1935, Volker came to England and has enriched the English graphic scene ever since. Working at Faber and Faber for many years, designing countless book jackets, he also designed many superb binding brasses which were made by a trade engraver following his quite unfinished sketches, paralleling perhaps his earlier collaboration with commercial stone carvers. Such trusted designer and tradesman is very rare today. Here were well, again from his catalogue some of his jackets. I had an argument or a discussion with a, uh, a calligrapher in Boston yesterday about these. He thought they were horrible. I can see what he meant, but they are certainly full of character and vigour, and they said favour and favour across the bookshop. I love them as one loves them, perhaps an ugly relation.
And what Joel Hill on the careers of other ex-top designers is well known that Fritz Cradle settled in, settled in America and Warren Chappell is a highly respected designer and writer on both sides of the Atlantic. Let's now look at some of those who were directly influenced by Gill in various ways try to follow his example, beginning with his apprentices and assistants. Joseph Cribb joined Gill in 1905 and was soon followed by his brother Laurie. Both were modest and highly skilled workmen, content to carve the master's designs without any ambition to make separate careers or to seek self-expression through their work. David Jones thought that Laurie Cribb was by far the best cutter of inscriptions, better than Eric, as Eric was the first to admit. But having compared rubbings and descriptions carved by both men, I must say that I do not agree with David Jones. Donald Potter, a well-known sculptor and teacher who spent six years with Gill, tells us in his delightful memoir that we, his pupils, were to copy and learn, and learn all he had to show us, and then improve on it or take what needed. How generous and open-handed this sounds, indeed was, it does put a certain obligation upon the learner to develop his craft. The problem being with such an assured and dominating teacher as Eric Gill, how? Here is a photograph of Gill leaning over Donald Potter while he masons a block of stone. Here is Eric Gill's sample gravestone, which Donald Potter carved. In 1938, a young Cambridge history graduate began work at the University Press there, studying printing under Walter Lewis. The typographical advisor to the press was Stanley Morrison, and the seven volumes of volumes of the Fleuron, most edited by Morrison, were lying around for down man to see and devour. He greatly admired Beatrice Ward's, alias Paul Beaujon's article, Eric Gill's Sculpture of Letters. Returning to Cambridge by train after visiting the VNA, where he bought reproductions of Gill's lettering, he found himself sitting opposite the great man. A conversation developed, and the outcome was a fortnight's stay at Piggott's, Gill's home in Buckinghamshire. Here, the most talented and skilled of Gill's successors in lettering, Reynolds Stone, learnt all that Gill could teach. Stone's instincts told him that he would have to escape from the powerful but stifling atmosphere of Piggott's. He left for his two weeks for up, although Gill wanted him to stay. Well known as Mar, the worker Reynolds Stone, unquestionably the greatest engraver of lettering this century has seen. What is interesting is that he needed so little instruction, and he certainly took what he needed from Gill. Here is a spread from the recent, well recently about four years ago published, four years ago published book of Stone's engravings. This page shows early 1930s work. The top label, very like Gill, the shapes are like Gill, the italic is like Gill, rather round. But the ones in black show a surprising compression. He suddenly discovered the Renaissance writing masters, and off he goes pursuing that particular uh, enthusiasm. Fairbank, the chancery flourished, the beautiful italic, the master use of space. Gill never attempted about this sort of thing, he wouldn't even approve of it. 
here is a little lone typeface which he designed for linotype called Minerva. He uses there the Gill R, which he later somewhat abandoned, going for a more conventional Trajan type R. Meryl Stone was an instinctive artist and a lover of scholarship. In fact, he, he valued scholarship above art. And he brought his developing mastery of lettering, a knowledge and love of type and history of printing. An admirer of Gill, the master of lettering, he reserved his hero worship for Morrison and his love for the Renaissance writing books, which were his lifelong source of inspiration. If Reynolds Stone is an example of, a, of an eminent artistic personality, an eminent artist personally influenced by Gill, there are others, ex-apprentices, who escaped to make their names in the world of lettering. Foremost among these were Ralph Bayer, who made a great name for himself as the carver of the massive inscriptions that line the interior of the rebuilt Coventry Cathedral. John Skelton, Gill's nephew and last apprentice, who has an international name as a sculptor as well as letter cutter. And perhaps the most widely known Gill thought letterer, David Kindersley. In the individual ways, these three men epitomized the problem facing the ex-Gill pupil. Where do we go from here? All immensely skillful, but faced with Gill's narrow legacy of restricted forms. Of course, there's nothing wrong in cutting clear, elegant inscriptions as Gill did, and perhaps directing one's creative energy into other fields, such as sculpture or engraving, again as Gill did. What is lettering which is your only concern, only talent? It's interesting to note here that Ralph Baer, with the influence perhaps of his German background and Sinematic father, was able to develop a distinctive style of lettering that with its tilted horizontals and slightly archaic flavour is easily recognised. This is looking down on the floor of Conte Cathedral, huge bronze letters left to the floor. Very, very unlike Bill. And here's a close-up of detail. They are about three feet high. Pretty big letters. Maybe David Jones showed the way with his painted inscriptions, but nevertheless, Ralph Bayer is a considerable stylist. David Jones is very individual, personal lettering. John Skelton's carved lettering usually stays fairly close to his uncle's style, and he cut the beautiful slate panel that carried the title of exhibition of Gill's work at Monotype House in 1958. And here's another uh, an inscription by Skelton at Stratford and Avon. Here, to my eyes, too tightly packed and the caps are too high, but it's a good piece of mainstream letter cutting. Occasionally appears to uh, go in for distortion of its own slate, and here's a sample of lettering cut in slate for a very strange animal indeed. As if he's tried the individual to prove something. And David Kindler's superb letter cutting technique is sometimes misused in the same way. Here is, again, I speak personally, a, a fairly grotesque, distorted piece of work. was responsible. Oh, another side of shape. Two more slides. This is Kinsley being absolutely straightforward and cutting a letter which is, uh, like I say, early 19th century, late 18th century. It's all like girls' work, but beautifully cut. Very nice piece of design. 
here again a charming, most moving headstone to a, a girl who was killed in a car accident, age 14. Lettering here, not unlike Ralph Baez. Kinsey was al also responsible for the, the beefed up Chase Nest lettering seen on street name plates throughout Britain. That is my road sign, Valley Road. As a type designer, he worked with his Cambridge friend Will Carter to produce Octavian, an effectively condensed text type. But he's also responsible for the distinctly ungill-like Mackay centenary, an unsuccessful attempt at the kind of thing far better done by the Czech designer Aldrich Menhart. Menhart, monument, type place. Something of a lettering celebrity, David Kinsley, is evidence of the struggle that a, a creative talent has to find its own voice in the post-Gill era, sometimes lapsing into graphic distortion and that artistic lettering, aimed at collectors, work that seems perverse to go against all that Gill stood for. And dare it be said that some responsibility for encouraging this kind of thing lies on this side of the Atlantic. I've tended to call this lecture Eric Gill and the German Connection. For after Kester and Koch, I must now bring Hermann Zapf into the story. Zapf's influence on the post-Gill letter in England has been noticeable, for even the insular English have been affected by the brilliance of his work. Self-taught by the writings example of Koch, it was still at a formative stage when he read Anna Simon's translation of writing and illuminating and lettering. And his fine, modern, calligraphic work is far removed from the typical English post-Johnson product, once described by John Brinkley as calligraphic knitting. Clear evidence of Zapp's influence can be seen in the work emanating from the, the Cambridge School of David Kinsley and Will Carter, the capital W letter, central serif, and the near-vertical and near-vertical outer strokes. This is um, Palatino done in the 50s by Zach. Here's the W I speak of. E at the top, that's a serif on the crossbar. Very wide S, the open R, very different to Gill. Here is a very recently produced uh, book of, alpha, of an alphabet by Will Carter. And there's a typical Zach W. The first and last strokes Ten towards the vertical. This incidentally is a very nice book. It's cut on um, chipboard, covered with veneer, and he cuts through the veneer, peels off the letter, then prints the background, getting the good grain texture. Typical real Carter thing. It's a very nice piece of work. Capital E without the uh, serif on the crossbar, and here we have again Will Carter making use of that uh, idea. Um, Carter does claim so well that one day he was drawing E and he felt the serve got in the way so he chopped it off and the whole thing looked better for it, but he's being slightly un uh, untruthful, of course, exactly about long before. And these are the trademarks which one, one recognises as uh, coming from the Cambridge School. The typing draw for the Cambridge University Press by David Kinsley Clearly owes far more to Herman Zatz Melior than anything that Gill drew with its 
squared up curves and its uh, unusual arc. Will Carter uses that Hunt Roman of the Rapid Lions Press in Cambridge, and its large X height and short caps can be seen in Carter's descriptions. To my eyes, that is, the caps are too short, never mind. Although not directly associated with Gill, Will Carter works happily in the mainstream of the Gill tradition. Zapp's influence is not felt everywhere though, and Reynolds Stone, who took his own scholarly and individual steps away from Gill, maintained that the German letters, even Zapp, could not draw decent Roman letters. The Stone was happily rooted in Cressy and other Renaissance masters, and he felt no need for further nourishment from contemporary sources. Here's Reynolds Stone in a not particularly good drawing, done by Richard Dyatt, in motif in the late 50s, sitting at his workbench in his living room, which is filled with books, books with up the ceiling, books with over the doors, books with piles on the floor. Behind him, you'd find the floor, and you'd find golden cockle books, jewels engravings. And he sat there, patiently engraving at his sandbag, you see it by his elbow, with his graving tools, while his family milled around him. You carry on the conversation, at the same time doing these precise and beautiful pieces of work. My own introduction to lettering had been through Gill's autobiography and other writings. <coughs> and I worked briefly with Joseph Cribb at Ditchling before joining Reynolds Stone in 1955 for a six-year period as his assistant in letter cutting. Stone referred to Gill as Eric, or the master and used somewhat Gill's method of correcting one's efforts, as described by David Kinsley in his typophile chapbook, Mr. Eric Gill. And that was to make criticisms amusing and apposite, so they stuck in the mind and the eye, and I didn't feel downcast. He also introduced me to Renaissance writing masters, and those were to buy John Howard Benson's facsimile and translation of the Rigi's Offerina. There is Benson's handwritten on the workshop wall, he, hang, he hung a rubbing of a gill alphabet stone to give me a good example to follow, but he was critical of several characters, especially the flag weight and lowercase r. As a corrective to Gill, and to my rigid adherence to Gill's lettering, he also gave me a proof of one of his own wooden grade alphabets. And there's a lovely thing if ever I saw one. In the early days, he would paint the lettering on the slate panels out of the car, and sometimes show surprising uncertainty about the shape of a particular letter, saying, let's see how Eric would have done this. And after much correcting and rubbing out, he would turn me to cut it, and that it would be all right on the night. Here is the first inscription I cut for Reynolds Stone in 1956, the tablets in slate on the Duff Cooper Memorial. Duff Cooper was a politician and writer. When I began to cut that, I was a novice, and when I finished, I could cut the in the slate. The thing I learned on. It took three months, non-stop cutting. I was impressed by his scholarship, and gradually, through daily contact with him, acquired respect for the past that added a third dimension to my enthusiasm for lettering. 
During this period, he explained his attitude lettering in a letter to Rory McLean, editor of Motif, saying, In general, I don't feel limited as to what one may or may not do in 1963, because I don't feel anything that applies to the past has come to a full stop forever. Colonel Stone was fortunate in having the almost lifelong patronage of Stanley Morrison, whom he revered. He always said that he worked with Morrison looking over his shoulder. And although Gill could be called Eric, he was never Stanley, but Morrison, and in the early days, Mr. Morrison. I soon felt bored by the daily task of cutting inscriptions to Stone's designs in the remote atmosphere of his Dorset workshop. The design in colourful book jackets, a nice change after grey slate, and of course the work of Herman Zapp and Bertolt Volpe, helped revitalise my equipment to lettering. The condensed, bold italic of the Dutchman, Helmut Sorden, was an exciting change from Stone's chancery style, and well suited to the narrow format of the book jacket, my greatly copied style. Recently, I was employed by the same Dutch publisher who used to use Sorden to do a book cover two book covers, and here they are. <coughs> the ampersand is a pure Reynolds Stone ampersand, by the way. I was never happy to be called a craftsman, to be called a craftsman. And, I, and by designing book jackets, I became gradually a graphic designer. I enjoy the excitement of working in the commercial world of publishing. I've done many jackets, and the two I'll show you here involve Gill. I was pleased and honoured to be asked by Messon to design the jacket for Robert Spate's book about Gill, trying hard to copy the master's style, because I think my R is a bit too wide. And recently I did this for a publisher in London and used a small Gill engraving and put round it lettering I thought he would approve of. This engraving I thought was done about 1910, but I saw it in the Boston Public Library two days ago dated 1935. The early training I had with, through Gill's lettering and Reynolds Stone has been a wonderful foundation for this later career as a graphic designer. And for 1964, the, the friendship and patronage of John Ryder at the Bobby Head have been spurred to my creativity and a, a break on my excesses. Ryder commissioned a typeface for the Bobby Head and the starting point was the lettering on the old London School of Printing in Stamford Street as a photograph at the top. This became the typeface you see used on the various firms, the Bobby Head controls. An example of going back to the 19th century and not going back to the Trajan column. Here's a recent jacket designed for the Bobby Head. Um, this came across with American jacket was published in the States first, and I must say it was a pretty terrible jacket. This often happens when one redesigns the jacket for the British market. And I learnt last year that the reverse happens, that British books come to America and the jackets thought were terribly dull and you then design nice, brash American jackets. In 1975, the Bodley Head published my book, Lettering Design, which using alphabets clearly derived from Gill attempt to explain the principles and historical facts behind them and show how they could be developed, as well as other styles which Gill would not have approved, although I like to think that my book would have opened his eyes. This book too, I did the jacket for, of course, in England, 
in the States had another jacket done by somebody else. I hope they're not here tonight, but I think it was a terrible jacket. Every principle in the book is denied on the jacket. But in America, the book is selling very well. In England, rather slowly. To bring this historical survey to a close, let me mention the influence and researchers, influence of the researchers' writings of Father Kattich. When his Origin of the Seraph appeared in England, Reynolds Stone had the copy to review and was so impressed that he carried the bulky volume around with him, even quoting from it over morning coffee. He also tried without success the kind of preliminary writing letters with a brush directly onto the stone that Father Kattich held with the Roman practice. And understandably, the American letter cutter who respects Kattich uses this method too. But I have to say that this sounds honestly like another set of rules encouraging a slavish adherence. Surely it is what is in, what is in one's head that matters, not the falling of a Roman practice, however interesting or revealing that may be as a piece of research. Now what is in our heads in the late 20th century, as far as the Roman letters are concerned, has to include its translation into type, its graphic representation through drawing reproduction, as well as insights provided by historical research into how the Romans actually did it. This is from The Origin of the Seraph. You may know this book. It has marvellous drawings at the end. Here is one spread. On the left, the brush-drawn letter. Cattish, of course, was a sign writer before he was an historian. This gives a, a special insight into, into how letters are made. And on the right, the, the cleaned-up version, as it might have been cut by a Roman stone cutter. It's a splendid book. Uh, not to be taken as gospel. Here is a recent inscription which I cut, which is in Canterbury Cathedral. This is not a guild lettering, it's not trading column, it's uh, I like to think a, a fairly modern calligraphic sort of letter. Drawn on the stone with a pencil, cut and painted. In the film that uh, Hallmark Carl's made of Herman's act at work, he doesn't give any rules about such things as the correct relationship between width of pen and height of letter, saying, it's all a question of what you want. That surely is a sentiment which, with which Gill would approve, would agree. The only way to avoid all the theories and hang-ups that have bedeviled the practice of lettering since Johnson set in motion the, the self-conscious revival of calligraphy is to decide what you want and let tools and materials and resources, and of course knowledge as a resource, serve that end. But of course you must first know what you want. Here is a, another inscription of mine for uh, Lillian Bayliss, which is in the London Coliseum. Here are a different style, uh, straightforward Roman caps and uh, a vigorous talent not too far from Reynolds Stone. then is the legacy that Eric Gill left to his successors. It has to be said that in spite of his enormous prestige, influence, and great achievements as an inscription carver, engraver, and type designer, his rather two-dimensional view of lettering, which excluded so much of his potential richness, has left his followers a meager inheritance. And those closely those close associated with him as pupils and assistants have had to struggle to find an identity even drifting into ungill-like eccentricity. Reynolds Stone, by far the most impressive of those who directly, directly influenced by Gill, 
sensibly escape follow his own star. How fortunate in comparison with those who studied with Koch. From Bertolt Falfer's evidence, the range of skills and techniques covered at Offenbach were more than sufficient to keep any letterer happy for a lifetime. In my view, the future of lettering is best assured by its use in real situations where technology or commerce pose real challenges to the lettering designer. Gill rose to the challenge of mechanical punch cutting and typecasting in his work for Morrison. The historian of letter forms and typography plays a central role in educating the practitioner. He or she, to not forget the example of Beatrice Ward, may also be a practitioner. But the practitioner left to, his, to pursue his own individual fancies, working perhaps for ignorant clients, is in danger of producing work that is excessively quirky or mannered. The continuing health of the culture of letters depends on the marriage of the museum, library, printing press, camera, computer, with the eyes, hands, hearts, and minds of individual designers. The forerunner of the modern lesson designer was Eric Gill, whose example and memory we celebrate this year in the centenary of his birth. Thank you.